0: Would you like to develop your critical thinking and public speaking skills while also learning about the legal system? Then Mock Trial Camp is for you. Do you want to try out for your school's Mock Trial Team? Then Mock Trial Camp is for you. Are you already on the team and want to take your skills to the next level? Then Mock Trial Camp is for you. The Championship Mock Trial Camp provides students with the opportunity to learn from local attorneys, high school coaches, and collegiate competitors. We offer a dynamic program consisting of interactive lectures, legal advocacy drills, stop-and-go scrimmages, and a competitive tournament with six to eight complete trials judged by local attorneys and judges. With all that is going on in the world, many competitions are preparing to use online trials for next year's season. Get a head start with us as we conduct all of our trials on Zoom. To register, go to MockTrialCamp.com mention this podcast and receive a 10 percent discount mock trial camp is for you
1: welcome to another episode of the admissions uncovered podcast my name's michael i'm an undergrad at columbia university and every other week i'm joined by my old teacher from high school don gonzalez to talk about college admissions how students can get into their dream schools how teachers and counselors can help their students, and how colleges can change the system to make it fairer and better for everyone involved. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes if you're on Apple, or on Spotify or whatever app you use if you're on Android, in order to make sure you get every single new episode the second it drops. With that, thanks for listening, and let's get on with the show. So we've been doing a lot of episodes, and... I actually get the question a lot about when I tell people I do college admissions counseling stuff still and test prep tutoring stuff. I get a lot of questions about why I do it because nobody really enjoys, at least enjoyed their college application process, um, and I don't think I necessarily did either. And my answer to that generally is because it's is good. It's good money, and, and we kind of like move the conversation along to to something else. But actually. I think it's more than that. So so Gonzalez and I wanted to talk a little bit about why about why we were still interested in college admissions, you know, for me two years after I've been through it and for Gonzalez maybe, you know, a couple more than two years after he's applied to college.
0: You're so kind. <laughs> so, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, is actually, you know, I'm the one that told you I think that we should talk about where it all began. And for me it's very personal. You know, and when I say that I'm passionate about this, I really mean that, particularly when I'm talking to my own students, is that, you know, you joked about it, but it really has been a while since I went through this whole process. I mean, I'm thinking about it now. It's probably over 35 years ago that I had to go through this process, and a lot has changed in that time. Yeah. But there are some things that haven't changed during that time. And so, you know, I was telling you off air that part of my story is is that you know, I was fortunate enough to go to the law magnet where I teach now. And I was telling you beforehand how that I really do believe that education is a key to opening doors of opportunity and that, you know, getting that education was very valuable. But unfortunately, I didn't have a very good counselor back then. When I first started at the school, we had a dynamic counselor, but she retired like my sophomore or junior, yeah, my sophomore year. And then she got replaced by someone who didn't have a clue about what they were doing. Just being a counselor, let alone being a college counselor. And we were a relatively small school, even smaller than we are now. We only had about 200 students at the law magnet when I went to school there, when the school first opened up. But I came from a family where no one in, on either side of my family had ever been to college, so I didn't even know what questions to ask. And that in the long run, looking back, that's actually what hurt me the most is I didn't even know that I didn't know the questions to ask. And unfortunately, I didn't have people that were supporting me there. The adults weren't, weren't prodding me with questions or checking on me. They just assumed that I knew what I was doing and I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have any reference point whatsoever. And just to give a little bit more context to it, you know, like you, I was valedictorian of the school when I graduated. And I had a fairly good SAT score. And I knew I had some options, but obviously this all predates the internet. There's no common app. All of this is being done by, you know, paper. We literally had these things called typewriters that you had to type your applications on. And God (laughs) forbid you make a mistake.
1: Wait, did you really?
0: Yes! (laughs) Yes, it was all done. (laughs) Oh,
1: I really thought that was a joke. I didn't know that was real. It
0: was not a joke. We didn't have personal... I didn't have access to a person. I did have access to some type of word processing device when I was, I think, a junior or senior in high school through the law firm I was working at, but they were still not affordable for the everyday person, and certainly my family couldn't afford it. So anyway, I'm in the midst of all this, and I, you know, I had picked the brains of, of a couple of people that were a little bit older than me. I had some friends that had gone east, you know, I had somebody that had gotten into Smith, and I had a friend that had gotten into Brown. And so I knew I wanted to go to one of those type of schools. I just didn't know how to maneuver through all of that. And these friends of mine, you know, they had parents that had gone to college, and they knew a little bit about the process, and I didn't. And so what ultimately happened is, you know, my SAT score was high enough that I had been accepted to most of the college, and I had, you know, I had all the other things that we talk about. Right. Right. You know, I was big in debate. I was big in mock trial. I was class president, all that sort of stuff. But so anyway, I applied. I probably applied to about 10 schools, got into all of them but one. I'd only applied to one Ivy League school, and I got into that school. And I got waitlisted to the school I really wanted to go to, which was Amherst.
1: But you got into Harvard, though, right? So. <laughs> yeah,
0: but here was the thing. And, you know, part of this was just ignorance. I couldn't, and look, I didn't know anything about reaching out to people about visiting campuses. I don't I don't even know if that sort of thing was available back then. I assume it was. I wouldn't I didn't know how to access fee waivers. I didn't know any of that. And so at the time my parents could you know, it was what, three or four, five hundred dollars to fly to the Boston area to go visit campus. And I was like, my parents can't even afford to buy me a ticket to go there to visit, let alone move there. And so and you know, this was the early Early 80s and financial aid wasn't like it is now. And so I made a financial decision to go to SMU because SMU gave me a full ride to go to school there. And I carried that with me for a long time. Which what's really funny is, is that, you know, when I graduated, I didn't even think about, you know, I didn't apply to an Ivy League law school. Oh. You know, I only applied to two law schools. I applied to Georgetown, I applied to UT, and I got into both. Both of them were T-14 schools, and I decided to go to UT because it was cheap and closer to home. And I think that if i were really introspective about it, I was probably afraid to go too far away at that point. Hmm. Kind of gotten into a comfort zone. But anyway, so you fast forward to when I started working at the law magnet, all these feelings of anger kind of came up to the surface. Of, that I was angry at the woman who was the coordinator of the school which is the job I'll hold now. And she was also, had been my debate coach. She was like a second mom to me. And I just remember just being so angry that one day that she and I went and had drinks and I was like, oh, I gotta know, why, why did you help me with my college stuff? I said, looking back at it now, it, it cost me an Ivy League education. And her answer was, you didn't ask for help. Mm. I assume because you were so smart, you had it together. And I'm like, you know, on one side of that, I was like, okay, I didn't ask for help. So that part of it was on. But for her to assume, and she knew me fairly well, I'd I'd been her student for four years. Yeah, She knew what my family background was. And so, you know, in the moment I forgave her, I was like, look, I can't hold this grudge anymore. But then at that moment, I made a commitment. I was like, I'm not going to let what happened to me happen to any of my students. And so I committed myself then, to learning as much as I possibly could about the college application process to start working with, you know, in the beginning it was, you know, at that time I was the debate coach, the debate students that I worked with and making sure that they were being helped. Um, I didn't know anything about our counselor in the beginning, but then I discovered, I don't know why this is, but the Law Bandit has had a long history of having what I would say less than great counselors you know, part of the challenge too is, is, you know, I don't want to knock all counselors. It's just that, in, at least in public education, I think a lot of people will get into counseling thinking that they're actually going to get to do counseling. And then they don't get to do that. They wind up being, they, they process a lot of paper, they have to do a lot that's related to testing. And that takes up a significant amount of their time. And then when the ratios are such that you've got one counselor for almost 500 students, there's not really a lot of time for personal counseling. So I just want to say, I don't want this to be a criticism of all counselors and to say that every counselor that we've had at my school have always been bad. They've had their moments and they've been able to help certain students, but I think across the board, they're not really able to. Yeah. And in our district, they hire, they outsource part of the college. I think they recognize that the counselors can't handle it all. So they've got these third party vendors that come in that help with college advice. And there are a couple of different ones. The one that our school uses is called Education is Freedom. I don't know if that's, a, if that's locally based or if it's nationally. Do you know?
1: I think their offices are on Mockingbird Lane, so they're local. Are they all nonprofits working with the college counseling departments?
0: That's a good question. I don't know. Opportunity. It's the summer before your senior year. Are you ready for your college applications? Have you even begun? are you stressed out? Do you even have all the resources you need? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. A recent article in the Institute for Higher Education Policy noted that access to information about the college application process is in short supply among the general population of students in the United States. At Championship Admissions, we demystify this process and lay out a tried and true method to get you into your dream school. Our three-day college admissions boot camp is led by Don Gonzalez, a 25-year veteran in secondary education, and Michael Gao, an Ivy League college student. Both of us have had great success in helping students into tier one schools. During the three days, we will help you develop your college list, we will guide you in developing a clear narrative, and provide you one-on-one feedback on your college essay. College admissions is more competitive than ever. Don't be left behind. Register now at championshipadmissions.com. Mention you heard about us on this podcast and receive a 10% discount. We have limited space, so to ensure your spot, act now. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, so that's the reason that I got into it. You know, nobody told me as as a brand new teacher that it was my responsibility to help with uh, with college stuff and to be honest I've always been the sort of person I don't ask for permission to do stuff I just started doing it I put myself in the middle of it and maybe sometimes I irritated the counselors in the process but I didn't really care because I thought I was doing what was in the best interest of kids I do know this and this is the toot my own horn but I know when I got to school there the teachers weren't pushing kids to apply to tier one schools that occasionally kids would but that just wasn't a big push and so that was part of me helping change the culture of at least the the debaters and then when debaters started getting into some of those schools I think it started to kind of overflow into the rest of the school so I made a lot of mistakes in the beginning I think I've shared before when we talked about rec letters I go back and I read some of the rec letters that I wrote back in the very beginning and by my standards of today they were awful yeah so that's the reason it's very personal to me and I don't want any of my students to miss out on an opportunity because they didn't know what questions to ask. Or ultimately, for me, it was over $300, $400, whatever the price of that ticket was back in the day. I don't know why $300 sticks in my head, but yeah. And you, what's your reason? Well. It's got to it's be more than the money.
1: Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the easy answer I give because... I generally don't want to talk about college admissions with just like random people I meet at Columbia. But I guess for me, it's, it's about like, it's also personal to me because, you know, I was very obsessed as I've mentioned many times about the Ivy League and, and kind of prestige and I'm not gonna lie, I still am. But I think that's probably not like a not great part of myself. And I think that when people come into the college admissions process who are like me, so middle upper class Asian, tiger parents, first generation, you know, child of immigrants, there's a real drive towards kind of like elite colleges. And there's a lot of stress induced with that. I I don't concern myself a lot with the stress and the mental health part of it. But I do think, you know, a lot of that kind of pressure to get into the Ivy League or whatever is just like wrong. Because people just kind of like chase this obscure, ambiguous gold star that is the Ivy League, and then they get into the Ivy League or some other great school, and then they're looking for the next gold star. And... At Columbia, that happens to be Goldman Sachs and McKinsey. And so you see all these, like, high-achieving Asian students, you know, not even Asians, they're just, like, high-achieving students in general who've chased their entire life for the gold star. They get to college, and they just, like, latch on to the next, like, big brand-name thing, which is Goldman and, and McKinsey, in, in my case. And that's bad. Like, Goldman and McKinsey are, are evil. <laughs> <laughs> gonzalez is smiling he's like this is like my like woke moment but but just like even if you don't think they're evil they certainly don't do good right they're they're, they're and they're certainly no by no means people's true passions or 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 like what they actually want to do with their lives there's no way that you know 25 percent of the student population actually loves spreadsheets and crunching you know like discount flow models i'm sure maybe it is for a percentage but probably not like 20, 30%. Um, so so to me, college admissions is a time where people can kind of stop chasing the gold star and figure out what they actually want to do. Maybe not with their lives, but at least what they want to do for the next four years. So they have at least a little bit of direction.
0: So I guess my follow-up question to you would be this. It sounds like you've done some reflecting, some self-reflecting on what your drive was what your motivation was for going and applying to ivy leagues and all of that yet you find yourself advising students who like you are trying to get into ivy leagues so how do you resolve that in your own mind like you're you know you just said what you said but yet you're working with these high school kids that are trying to get into ivy leagues and you've had a pretty good run of it in the last 2 years for the short amount of time you've been doing it yeah
1: I think the first thing is how I look at the college list has changed, right? So when I entered the process, my college list was Ivy Leagues minus Dartmouth because I would never go to Dartmouth. It's two in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> and a couple of the other like T20 schools that I thought were more, you know, targets for me. And now when I advise students about making their college list, we actually talk about what they want to study, what they want to do, and then go from there to make a list. And, you know, it always ends up that, the, you know, the Ivy Leagues are still going to be their reaches, but now they have actually reasons for those Ivy Leagues, right? So instead of being like, oh, I want to go to Harvard because Harvard, you know, you know, this, this kind of like entrepreneurial businessy type person might say, huh, maybe like... Wharton is the better fit for me, even though maybe like Harvard is the better, like more prestigious brand and the one that my mom will be able to show off at. But dinner party better, but but Wharton's the one that kind of fits me better. So so there's still like a prestige drive, but there's a little bit more of kind of just like direction to it as well.
0: So I'm curious what your thoughts are, you know, because a lot of what you talk about are kids that come from similar background to yours. Yeah. But what about, you know, like you had an opportunity, not this, this, past week, but the week before when you talk to my mock trial kids, you know, a few of those kids are going to probably, you know, based on their SAT scores and everything else, are going to have a pretty good shot at getting into some IVs. And for them... I don't know, I'd look at them differently than I would look at what you're talking about with the sort of student that you work with, because I, I don't know, I'd really be interested in hearing your take on this, but I think that in some ways it has a bigger impact on their lives and future generations and their family as well. Like if one of those kids goes, you know, I know I've got one that wants to go to Harvard and I've got another one that is looking at Yale. And if that happens for them, I think the impact that that has on them and their future family is pretty significant compared to, I don't know, the upper middle-class student Who's probably got a pedigree of siblings and parents and grandparents that have already been to schools like that. I don't think it has as big of an impact. And I'm also curious as kind of a, a side question as well as how you maneuver around all of this stress that you're talking about. And I have another question related to this. I don't want to hit you with like too many questions, but like one of the questions that I wanted to ask you is, And maybe I'll start with this. In you making the decisions to apply to the schools that you did, were you motivated by what your parents wanted you to do, or was it what Michael Gow wanted to do? And can you separate the two having been raised in that household, I guess is the other kind of existential question.
1: Well, yeah, I was going to say that, right, because I don't think my parents were driving in Ivy League in my head. Like, at the dinner table, we actually didn't talk about college applications. You know, they asked, like, how are your essays going? I said good, and then, like, we moved right along. So, so there, there wasn't actually, you know, there, there was no, like, tiger parenting happening in my household. Like, I was my own tiger parent. But, like, I'm not an idiot. Like, I don't think I was, like, born out of the womb, a prestige chaser, you know? Like, at some point, like, maybe when I was growing up or something, we had the conversation or, you know, at some point I watched some movie or some TV show where, like, an Asian guy got into Harvard or whatever. Like, I, I do not think everything was because I decided it. Like, I really do think, and I can't name specific instances, but I'm sure, like, when I was growing up, you know, there there's something my parents told me. And... I feel like that's probably the same for the students you work with, too, right? Like, I, I don't think it's, you know, for your students who, you know, now are chasing Harvard and Yale. Like, at some point, someone had to, like, inspire them to think about the schools, or at least tell them about those schools.
0: Well, I mean, I think that a lot of them, they are attracted to what I think you accurately call the brand. Mm. It's always funny to me when I interview these incoming students as 8th graders and then even when they're ninth graders because I start talking about college very early on with them and when ninth graders say they want to go to Harvard and I'll tell them that can happen because we've had kids go to Harvard from our school but just because you say you want to do it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Yeah. And I think that's one of the other things that I'm equally passionate about and in being involved in the college application process is that I'm very real with the kids. Like, if they want a shot at going to Harvard, I'll tell them, you know, that, all right, if you do these sorts of things, you've got a shot. But there's still a great potential for disappointment. But then on the other side of it, too, is like, you know, two years ago, I remember sitting down with the girl that was the presumptive valedictorian and she wanted to go to Columbia, and she had a 1080 SAT score. Oh, okay. And hadn't done anything extracurricular-wise. She she had been one of these students that had done a really good job of maneuvering through the AP system. She was a hard worker. She could make an A, and because those classes were weighted, she could get herself a good rank. But it's one thing to overcome one gap in your application, like an SAT score, but when you have like two big major gaps, like all she did was just work really hard and make an A's in her classes. She didn't have anything else. And I just flat out told her, I said, with what you got, you're not going to get in to Columbia.
1: Yeah, no, that's not enough.
0: And I don't think that there, you know, and again, I don't want to toot my own horn on this, but I don't think that there are enough people that are courageous enough to be honest with kids about that. I don't want to set the kids up for, for failure, you know. And I also think, you know, I have a responsibility to the school as well. I think you and I have talked about this off air before about what it does to the reputation of school if you're not screening those applicants on the front side. And I think there does need to be some sort of screening process so that for that kid that is on the margin that does have a chance, but needs a little bit extra because of the reputation of the school, or, you know, whatever, that we're able to help them get in. And and I think that we do kids an injustice when, when we say, oh, you can go to any school that you want to, and blah, blah, blah. Well, that's just not true, you know? So, I mean, especially
1: that late in the process, right? Like, th- this is, this is you know, some frustration that I have, you know, because I generally work with students when they're juniors, and, you know, they're finishing up their tests, and then we get into the summer, and we start working on their applications. When you're at that point, everything new that you do is just not going to count as much, and it's just not going to be as significant. Colleges are going to think you just did it for the applications, and you're just not going to have the time to develop, it, develop whatever activity or interest you're doing into something real and big and significant on your application and so sometimes i'm frustrated because like i didn't get to talk to these students when they were freshmen and be like hey if you're interested in you know like computer science and your class in your school doesn't have computer science classes let's find the resources for you to pursue that interest you know like let's hop on code academy let's sign you up at you know like community college let's get you on free code boot camp or whatever right because you know like to me right college admissions is all about like finding a gold star that isn't just prestige right like finding something that you actually care about and want and i try to do that kind of later in the process but it feels to me that needs to happen freshman, sophomore early on in high school middle school even if possible and i think that's the kind of counseling aspect that just cannot get done in public schools because everybody is so under-resourced
0: so what's the solution
1: more funding leading heart liberal says more funding no i mean i think i think more counselors is gonna obviously help things um but i don't know i mean i think you know, like, this is such an amorphous thing, but, like, something about counselors being, you know, like, it being the culture at a school that counseling is more than just selecting classes, I think. Because I feel like that's the mood of a lot of public school counselors, that they're just, like, shuffling students through and making sure they graduate and scrambling to file the papers needed. And I think it's that's, A, a resource thing, but also, B, like, just a cultural expectation thing.
0: My take on this is from a different angle and that is is that the process seems to be so closed in terms of the available information like the whole you know, you've said this before on other episodes that the whole college application process is pretty much the the information itself is fairly closed like how do colleges make their decisions and what are they looking for and that sort of thing mm. You know, I think that the one ray of, of hope and light that I see is because, and I just say this because of my involvement with them, is the QuestBridge program. I feel like QuestBridge has done a really good job of, like, open-sourcing materials to people. You know, it's me participating in their webinars that's, you know, taking my application game to the next level. You know, it's how i learn how to write better rec letters. And I think that their work is good work, and I think that they're helping close that gap, closing that gap of information. But I wonder, you know, I don't know that just hiring more counselors fixes the problem. I mean, and I think you're absolutely right. We need to be starting with the kids at a younger age. And I really, you know, I think we've talked about this before is that it seems like it's starting earlier and earlier. The decisions that are made by counselors and teachers. It is, yeah. When a student is in the seventh grade impacts what they can do in high school. A simple decision like whether or not that kid gets put on a pre-AP track in middle school is going to affect the type of courses that they can take when they get to high school and a lot of parents just don't know you know and maybe that's not the case in a suburban school district like you went to initially before you went to the law magnet but i, I certainly know it's the case when i start talking to these parents when their eighth graders are being admitted to the law magnet and i start asking them why is your why is your daughter just in regular eighth grade math why isn't she in pre-AP algebra one they don't know and and there are some things that we can do to fill that gap, but that kid's already starting off behind.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I think like my my response to those types of curricular challenges is that we just raise the bar for everybody. Just make everybody take the honors level track. Like I, I don't know, like it, it feels like the right thing to do because even if you're bad at math, sending you and putting you in a remedial math class is not gonna make you improve. It'll just like maintain your like mediocreness. <laughs> Like the only the only way you get kids to improve is I think by pushing them a little bit more. I don't know, I just, I just think you just raise the standards all the way for, for curricular stuff. But I don't know, I think the, the more interesting thing is just like, how do you build people's interests early on? Or like give the space for students to pursue not, not even their passions, but just like what they might want to maybe do in the future early on. I, I think that is something that is just not done enough.
0: I don't know. So are we saying that kids have to stop being kids at an earlier age?
1: But is it like not, is is it about not being a kid or is it about like actually being a kid? Like, I don't know. Like if you're a kid and you're interested in like, I don't know, you know, being an astronaut, then then maybe let's do some stuff about space. And, and let's like do some stuff about physics, right? Like, you know, you can be a kid and have all the interests of being a kid and, and do something about that. And and I think, you know, there's like a gap between, you know, having these like grandiose dreams about doing something or whatever, and actually doing it. And I think that gap needs to be filled by it, it's being filled in rich families by parents who send their kids to fancy, you know, summer camps. But but at public schools, particularly like under-resourced public schools, like the law magnet, that gap is not being filled right now.
0: I don't, I, I guess I struggle with how I feel about this. I mean, you know, because I do see that sometimes you know when you start trying to add a little bit more structure to an interest like let's your example of somebody that's interested in you know I want to be an astronaut, and then you start making the kid go to camp or you find these things, you know you run the risk of pushing them away from the thing that they're interested in you know I don't know i I think that you and I may be similarly wired you know i when I was prepping for the show and actually writing the chapter of the book that's associated with this, I was I remember that my earliest memory of knowing that I wanted to go to college, I was about five. And it all came from, I don't even know if you know this show, uh, although they're doing a, HBO's doing a reboot called Perry Mason. Have you ever heard of Perry Mason?
1: Yeah, the lawyer show. Yeah, yeah, Okay.
0: Yeah. So when I was about, I, wa- I want to say I was around five, I knew that Perry Mason had not ever lost a case on the TV show. And I found the show to be fascinating. And I remember telling my mom that I wanted to, I wanted to go up and be a lawyer because I wanted to beat Perry Mason. So somewhere there was a little bit of a disconnect about knowing that he was a fictional character <laughs> or not. But I knew, you know, I knew that if I wanted to go to law school, that I had to go to college. I had to do that. And so from that point forward, from you know, like about five or six. I wanted to be a lawyer. So everything that I did after that, you know, the middle school I went to, going to the law magnet, you know, what I majored in in college, going to law school was all geared towards that. So I don't know that there are that many kids that are wired that way.
1: See, but I don't think it's a matter of wiring. Like, I i, I don't think I was like, again, like born out of the womb, wanting to be a prestige chaser for the first, you know, like 20 years of my life, or not even 20, like 18 years of my life. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Michael has forgotten how old he is.
1: (laughs) I'm officially old, (laughs) y'all. No, it's just like, I, I don't, I think it's never a matter of wiring. I won't say never, but as far as like your interests, it's always a matter of who's pushing you and who's, you know, like giving these opportunities to you.
0: So do you feel like your parents gave you those opportunities? Yeah,
1: I mean like I I mean my parents worked, so so they had to find childcare for me, but but they didn't just send me to like the the daycare at the elementary school, like most stereotypical suburban, you know, Asian kids, I went to like an after-school Chinese school and we did like extra math and reading homework and I went to Chinese class on Sundays for a very long time and obviously hated it when I was doing it. And I don't know if it was actually effective in terms of teaching me something my Chinese is really, really bad, despite all those years of week in Chinese school. But, But there's something about the kind of like culture and discipline that that gave me. I think that is definitely true. And I think that was not just me. What was something that, you know, my parents gave to me and that we parents, schools, you know, educators, whatever can give other students who may not be in the same position.
0: Well, and what I'm hearing from you is this, is that I think you and I share, you know, both came from different type of backgrounds think your family's probably more affluent than mine was growing up. But both of my parents valued education and you know, my parents drove all over the place to make sure that I was able to go to debate tournaments and, and do other enrichments. I mean, I, my parents sent me on a, you know, like the, the year between my seventh and eighth grade year, I did a summer away in Mexico to be part of a of gifted students enrichment program. So, yes. So they did all these things. Oh, really? Oh, my gosh. We didn't have the money to afford these things, but they, they sought other resources. Like, I got a scholarship to go to that thing. I didn't. We didn't have the money to send me to it. But so they looked for those sorts of things. And so, you know, and I see in some of the parents of the students that I have that are parents that are willing to sacrifice all sorts of things to be able to give students opportunities. But you're right. Not all parents are like that. And so uh, I'm always, I'm always troubled about the school taking the place of the parent. You know, it's like one more thing that we've got to, that we've got to do because parents aren't doing. And, and I don't know how to find balance in that. You know, especially when we're talking about early on and, and, and. You know, I have some ideas about it. You know, I run a summer camp. And I'm looking at starting some additional summer camps, and they're all going to be enrichment camps. And I think that, you know, part of my long-term goal is for them to be profitable enough that I can give enough scholarships to students who might not otherwise. And I know, you know, we have a mutual friend, Chris, Chris Wright, who does that already in the debate world, and he's done, doing doing a phenomenal job with that. And so,
1: <laughs> shout out to Texas Debate Collective, TDC, y'all.
0: I think that making those sorts of resources more known and more available to people, I think perhaps will clo- help close that gap. And then educating parents. I think that's that's a component that, that people don't talk about quite enough is that educating parents. You know, it's it's bad enough that the kids like me when I was in the 11th grade or 12th grade, not knowing what questions to ask, but the parents don't know what questions to ask either. You know, I think that, you know, one of the interesting things about you and I being part of this podcast together is that besides the fact that we represent two spectrums of age, you know, me being so old is
1: <laughs> <laughs> I never I never said that. I would never say that.
0: But I I think that, you know, you know, and I represent kind of the teacher and you represent kind of the student, but I also think that with the experience that I've had with the type of students that I work with and the type of students that you work with, we also represent those two different spectrums. So I think that that's one of the interesting things about these conversations that we have cuz i think that we do cover the wide spectrum and so even if we don't hit the middle kid i think that the stuff that we talk about is relevant to anybody in between those two spectrums if that makes any sense
1: so i guess we're we are over 30 minutes but like the last thing i want to say is that like and we don't have to put this in the show i guess but like it just feels weird to me just to rely on like i get like you don't want public schools or government to substitute for parents but it feels like such an unsatisfying answer that you know like the the problem is just that like some parents care or like not that maybe care is too you know like moralistic of a word but some parents are going to push and value education and some parents don't and that's just like how that's just going to play out in this like kid who has no control over what his parents value or what her parents care about their life forever like that that feels like such an unsatisfying answer and so like my response to that is like yes we got to educate parents but we also gotta like step in when parents aren't valuing education or valuing something that should
0: be valued so i would argue that it's not an either or question it's a both and that you approach it from both both ways in both directions you know i think that there's that in our two answers there's a little bit of the tension i think that you have a tendency to you know your view on politics is big government's good and i think i have a tendency to think that it's not
1: big government it's smart government big government
0: however you want to view it michael I you know, you know, I I don't have a lot of faith in in the government being able to solve the problems of our world. So, anyway, I don't want to get off on that tangent, but I do think that there are you can take multiple approaches to it. You don't just have to take one approach to it. You know, like for example, my idea of educating parents, well that still requires there be some sort of of school involvement you know that that the school itself is the one that's doing it i mean you and i have talked about this before how we're talking about students and parents not knowing the teachers don't even know you know so so you know i think that we have system failures you know and, and maybe you can speak to this with the friends that you have like you know back you know now that you're back home, uh, I'd be curious because my granddaughter, you know, now lives in the school district where you went to school. So I, was, I was smiling the entire time you were talking about your Chinese school because she goes to a daycare that's owned by a Chinese-American family. Oh, I can't. But, you know, they, you know, like, they they teach them uh, Mandarin Chinese and, you know, because she, she's got all these nursery rhymes that she knows in Chinese that she can sing, so... <laughs>
1: That's amazing, by the way. She's gonna she she's just gonna actually speak better Chinese than me. She
0: probably already does. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I but what my, what my question was going to be is that uh, with maybe some families that you know that still live in Allen, what has been and that's a fairly large high school.
1: Yeah, a thousand kids per grade. We have like a satellite ninth grade because our main high school is just not big enough.
0: Right, and this I. It's, I drive by that building every time I go see my granddaughter and that ninth grade facility is huge. How do how do students there feel that they are being taken care of when it comes to this sort of thing?
1: You know, I've definitely heard frustrations. Yeah, I've definitely heard frustrations. But I also don't think that if you, if you look at the kind of outcomes, the college outcomes from an Allen, even among kind of like your traditional tiger mom, Asians, your like GT program, which is, you know, who is in the GT function is generally like GT program is generally a function of like parents pushing kids to take this like random test, right? So like people in the GT program tend to have really active parents and their outcomes are not incredible like their outcomes are ut honors programs which is like good but it's 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 no like exeter 20 kids to to harvard every year or whatever so so it's not like their outcomes are stellar but it's i also don't hear as much kind of complaining among you know the the students there i think they kind of just like understand that they seem to be like locked in this mindset that just the ivy league is just like too hard and just like doesn't happen um like alan gets maybe one kid into the Ivy League every year. Maybe, right? Like, max one, so.
0: So my gut about them is probably right. It's more like a and UT, OSU, schools like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's just... And I think that's not uncommon among public schools, not just in Texas, but just like anywhere where the kids are like, oh, we'll just we'll just kind of go to the state school, right? Because if you look at elite schools, not even elite school, just like private colleges, private liberal arts colleges, they are made up of affluent students, right? Like, you know, the Ivy League, you know, has this great financial aid policy and we brag a lot about it and we talk a lot about diversity, but at the end of the day, you know, like, majority of our class is very very wealthy
0: well now i have to start thinking about what i'm going to do with my granddaughter she's four years old now gotta get her started on this track michael
1: (laughs) (laughs) she's already learning chinese i think she'll be fine
0: (laughs) i mean the whole thing about the gt thing though is you're right though a lot of this is another thing parents don't realize it's not it's not 100 related to what we're talking about but it is somewhat related is that parents don't realize that um, the easiest, you know, that the, there's a nomination process um, for most GT programs. And, you know, the number one nominators always tend to be teachers. A teacher will recognize something in a student in the first or second grade or whatever and, rec- and, and nominate them for the GT program for them to be tested or whatever. But most parents don't realize that they can nominate their student to be in the GT program too. And that's standard procedure in most school districts.
1: So hopefully this podcast will give people more information so that they can help their kids. Because I think, you know, like whatever this conversation has been about, it's definitely talked about how, you know, at some point a parent or a teacher or a counselor or just like someone has to step up because, you know, kids are not born knowing what they want to do or like knowing they want to achieve or knowing that education is valuable. Someone at some point had to like poke them and then tell them that.
0: Yeah, if I can go back to my original sharing of about how I, you know, my backstory from when I was in high school, why I got into all of this to begin with, is you can only do what you can do. You know, I know that my biggest frustration these last two years have been encountering students that have had way above average SAT scores and done absolutely nothing with it. You know, like no motivation to apply. You know, I think of one student that comes to mind right now that I recommended he talk to you. He never reached out to you. And, you know, it's you know it's a cliche, but it's like that whole thing about taking the... You can take the horse to water, but you can't make him drink. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with... I think I did what I needed to do. I gave the student the resources they needed to. I encouraged them to do more. And then if they don't... I, I can go to sleep at night feeling okay with myself because I at least prodded and asked the questions. And... You know what gives me hope is like one of the one of the kids that was in the episode that we did. Uh, I guess it's the one that's currently airing right now. The one the the Zoom talk that you did with those kids.
1: Yes. So two episodes ago, when this was released, it's called like Q and A with law magnet students. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, one of those girls had kind of given up hope on Ivy League until. Yeah, well, until you and I, you know, I talked to her and then you and I talked about her and it's like, oh, she's, you know, she's, she's like 100 points away on her SAT score of being in the wheelhouse. So, um, and so I feel good about that. It's just like having those conversations. But again, you know, like if, if there wasn't somebody in her life like me pushing her, she would have just given up, you know, she didn't, she even, you know, I think she's ranked number three in her class. I wonder if she would have even asked anybody. Or if she would have just given up and settled for something less than what her dream was. And and the way I learned about it is, I you know, I make my kids do that assignment where I make them list out their top 10 schools. And I looked at her two read schools and I didn't see Harvard on there. I was like, what's going on? You were the kid that, you know, when you first came here, you said you wanted to be Harvard. And I've been kind of tracking you and you're on that track. And we got a lot of work to do. But I just think that, you know, my hope for this podcast is that we continue to inspire people to want to do some of the things that you and I are doing and then also I think it's also the motivation for writing the book is getting getting more resources in the hands of people you know more more students can be informed more parents can be informed more teachers can be informed uh, you know we start affecting a little bit more change
1: absolutely with that and that like plug for the book we want to know what you want to hear in the book we want to know what you want to hear on future episodes what questions you're having what problems you're facing so if you want to let us know go to the admissions uncovered website admissionsuncovered.com. there's a contact us button on the top right click it type your question type your problem and just uh, let us know and we'll mention on a future episode all right i guess we'll leave it like that thank you so much for listening and we will see you guys in two weeks Thanks again for watching this week's episode of the Admissions Uncovered podcast. Look, I know college admissions is super confusing, and that's one of the reasons that Gonzalez and I are doing this podcast, to give information to the people who need it the most. But the thing is, you might have more questions, and some of those questions might be personal to your situation and what you want. Well, that's why I'm offering a special opportunity listeners of the podcast to work with me individually through my college admissions counseling and test prep company, Gao Admissions. I've seen some great results over the years. On average, SAT scores go up by 100 to 150 points. Students I have counseled have gotten into schools like Dartmouth, the University of Pennsylvania, gotten full rides from schools like the University of Texas and other schools like that. And so I'm here to help if you have individual questions. So if you're ready to get started on your college journey, go to gauadmissions.com, scroll to the bottom and fill out that contact me form and I'll be in touch.